Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Sportscaster and Her Son, where sports bridges the gap between the generations. I'm your co-host, Peggy Kaczynski, 12-time Emmy Award-winning sportscaster from ESPN Radio 1000 in Chicago, formerly of NBC Chicago. And I'm the mom and the baby boomer. Hi, Jason. Hi, Mom. I am Jason Canander. I'm the other co-host. I am a rising junior here at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm an intern at CBS Austin, write for Southside Sox, do stuff for student Texas student television uh, when school's in session, and uh, I'm Generation Z. Okay, can I ask you, why are you a rising junior? So rising junior is a term like when you're in between like sophomore year and junior year. So like when you're going to be that grade, but like you're not that grade yet, but you're currently like out of school, then you just say rising junior instead of saying like I just finished my sophomore year. Oh, okay. I got it. Hey, thanks everyone for um, following us on YouTube, our website, the sportscaster and her son, and listening to us and watching us wherever you get your podcast. Please continue to download and follow and tell a friend. Don't forget you can get some of our fan merch as well at our store on TeePublic. Now, that link you can find on our website, thesportscasterandersun.com. Okay, Jason, in this episode, it's been 50 years, 50 years since Richard Nixon signed a document that would become the most important legislation for women in my lifetime, that being next to the right to vote, which was before my time. Title IX has given women opportunities not only in sports, but in education. 37 words passed June 23rd of 1972. They are, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. This is the 50th anniversary of Title IX and Jason I don't know how much you know about Title IX, but it has really changed not my life, but many, many women's lives over the last 50 years. Do you remember when uh, President Nixon gave that, gave that little spiel about Title IX? No, because I was actually in 1970. You would have been seven or eight, right? I was like in third grade, I think. Um, you know, it, it was – what was interesting, though, is – I, I played sports. I mean, I we had intramurals, but a lot of the sports we played, you always had to turn your 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 uniforms in so that the, the next team could use them, the next girls team. So like by the time I got to seventh grade, um, we I, I went to try out for the basketball team in sixth grade. And uh, my mom had told me, oh, go ahead to tryouts. Well, it turned out it was boys tryouts and they didn't have a girls sixth grade team. So the coach told me, oh, Peggy, just go home next year. You can try out. So I had, you know, my Chuck Taylors tied in a knot over my shoulder. Your Wilt Chamberlain threes. Yeah, exactly. My powder blue Chuck Taylors, Chucky T's. And um, I went home and, you know, my mom was very much in support of me playing sports. I loved basketball. I loved playing softball. Uh, we didn't have baseball. We didn't have little league for girls back then. So we had to wait and play softball in seventh and eighth wow. grade. But my Catholic school that I went to in, in grammar school and high school, we always had sports. What stood out was we didn't have the equipment, um, the gym time. Uh, we played in a, a girls athletic association in which you you wrote your scores down and then you shared them because they still didn't want super competitive leagues yet. Oh. So, yeah, it was really, it was That's different. not even sports. Like, like 
I know. Oh. Like, we didn't know the difference, though. We we honestly didn't didn't know any better. Wow. To be wow. So I. So I, I guess I guess what what my next question would be is I mean even though you you just described that you remember what sports were like a little bit before like what. I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, did people know how big of a deal this was at the time when president Nixon signed this into order? Like, was this sort of like a, like a suffrage moment, like where people kind of knew how big this was when it happened or in the 50 years since president Nixon signed title nine into order, do you think that it has become something much bigger than it was initially intended to be? Well, it definitely became something it, it was, um, it, it did not receive as much attention because okay. to be honest with you, uh, there were women that were split on it. It didn't have a lot of women's support. It, well, and I shouldn't say a lot. It didn't have all of women's support at that time. Um, I think the women's movement felt that there were other things that they should be fighting for. Uh, so there was a little bit of a, of a split within women themselves. Um, and you know, Jason, it really took a few years for it to actually have an effect. So I'm going to give you an example. In 1971, the year before Title IX was passed, uh, only 1% of college athletic budgets actually went to women's sports programs. At the high school level, male athletes at that time outnumbered female athletes 12 to 1. So wow. Title IX was signed into law June 23, 1972. Since the passage, female participation at the high school level has grown 1057 percent wow i mean it's it's unbelievable um what it has done uh, and that was just numbers 10 years ago um the true significance though of title nine is really the opportunities that it gave women um off the field as well not just in sports you know there were law law programs law schools and doctorates that did not allow women at the college level they did not accept women into their programs there was always an accept you know an exception here or there um but it was really the opportunities for women, the educational opportunities for women that now you are seeing women who who had Fortune 500 companies or Fortune 50 companies and, um, you know, run businesses. It's really the effect is so far reaching, not just sports, um, that it's it's really um, pretty amazing what it has meant for everybody. That was pretty funny. I just heard the uh, the garage the garage door open in the background after before the call. You told Stella not to do that. Um, as a mom, like, what does Title IX mean to you as somebody who has a daughter that is going to be in high school that is going to be playing high school sports? What does that mean to you that Stella is going to have some more opportunities that you didn't necessarily have, even though Title IX was in place by the time you got to high school? But like you said, it took a couple of years for Title IX to actually go into effect to make an impact. What are you? What are your hopes for Stella's high school sports experience? How do you think it's going to be different than, from yours? Well, first of all, there there's a lot more support. You um, the, the the budgets are almost equal now uh, at the high school level. I would say almost, and people always count you know point at um, football. Uh, it, it, you can't really compare it to football because football has so many more participants, so many um, more coaches, so many more players, so much more that yeah. just goes into yeah. It, but but the opportunities available are pretty significant. Um, at the high school level, what we see is 
if you want to do something, you have an opportunity. You go find a program. It's there. Uh, what was 50 years ago is there just wasn't a program. Uh, if you, if you had to really look. Yeah, you had to really look for them. So uh, I think for your sister and for my daughter, I think for Stella, it, it's going to be very normal sports experience. It's um, not going to be the exception. It's really the rule that all teams are created and, and treated equally. Uh, that's what I think she's going to see the biggest differences. And the other thing is going to college. She has a choice. Wherever she wants to go, she can go now. There there are no longer those um, banned, women are banned from, you know, taking part in, in this field of study or that field of study. So uh, it's really, when I tell girls, and I, I do this all the time with girls in the game, uh, when I tell them that you truly can be anything that you want to be, I, I, that is absolutely a truth because you do have those opportunities to do and be whatever you want to be now. And, you know, every college will give you those opportunities. So when I look at like the way that the role of women in society, the role of women in business, the role of women in sports, when I look at the way that it has progressed in my lifetime and then bigger picture since Title IX, I think that the one aspect that seems to kind of lag a little bit behind every other area is professional sports. When you look at the professional sports leagues, although the level of competition might be on par with the men's sports leagues, women's professional sports leagues have always seemed to struggle to, to gain traction, to gain popularity. And why do you think that is? Because I'm going to use something really quick. Women's college sports are arguably at the best point popularity-wise that they've ever been. The women's NCAA tournament in basketball did very good numbers on ESPN first year with the full field. And even, I mean, I was watching the games. I watched all of Texas's games. The way that the scheduling worked out, it was perfect because the women would have the Monday after the men's games. And that way, all the people that had just watched basketball, both men's and women's the past four days, wanted a fifth day, watched the women's, and people were hooked. And then in the case of baseball slash softball, the Women's College World Series and softball actually did better numbers ratings-wise for the second straight year than the Men's College World Series. So even though college sports seems like we're getting a little bit closer to equal, why do you think professional sports are so far behind and very little progress is ever made? There's a couple of reasons for that, Jason. It's a really good question because um, I would first point to, first of all, first in gets the first fans. So men are playing basketball, men were playing baseball, men were playing football, whatever the, the, the first sports, we always saw it was men. And so you just naturally become, you know, uh, that that's who you're going to watch because that's who you've always watched. So now you have to get people to switch and also watch the women playing the same game. And that's really hard to take fans away from what they're used to watching already. But second and third really is uh, the exposure. So the reason you point to uh, the College World Series, it's all on television now. It gives people an opportunity to watch it. Now they're seeing it. If it's not on TV every day and it's only a once every now and then, you know, like for women's college basketball, you know, if it was only during the tournament, only in March that you saw women's basketball, it's hard to get people to then buy into this is, you know, a rivalry. These two teams, the Big Ten, the SEC, you know, whatever network, ACC. So the exposure 
is the biggest thing. And until the TV networks spend the same amount of manpower and money on covering the women's game and developing those rivalries with those audiences, then you're going to constantly lag behind. And I think because we're starting to see that, you don't broadcast a game and, you know, this is like women's gymnastics. It used to be only once every four years. Every four years, you would see it during the Olympics, right? And so people would just watch the Olympians. Now your sister, my daughter, Stella, will watch college gymnastics on TV. And I see her talking about the best athletes and what the best programs are at the different universities. Now, 10 years ago, I don't know that you you could get a, a 13-year-old girl to know that because they weren't on TV. Now we turn on the TV and we can find college gymnastics and she'll sit and watch that. Is If the exposure is there, you will develop the fans and you develop them through the personalities of the players and the natural rivalries of different schools and different leagues. Once you start developing that that's any fan base. Why are you a, a White Sox fan? You know, and you, you know, don't like the Cleveland Guardians, you know, or the Minnesota Twins because you know the rivalry. You know, it's the Bulls and the why do you not like the Pistons? It's that is that is a really interesting point that I've never thought about that. And I think that it's a really, really good good point that you know, women's sports just needs more established rivalries because rivalries are one of the things that sucks people into a sports team, a, a sports league. And then the other thing are iconic athletes. And I think that women's sports is doing such a better job of marketing their best athletes. I mean, Brittany Griner is sort of a unique situation. But when Brittany Griner wasn't in a Russian prison, you could argue that she was probably the most popular female athlete in the country. The WNBA did an excellent job of marketing her. So I would think that, yeah, I do think that just you can market the sport as much as you want. You can make it available on TV. But at the end of the day, it still needs to be a product that people consciously decide to watch. And in most cases, people will consciously decide to watch over men because there's no way where you can have like a WNBA where the season just kind of like picks up or is 40% of the way through when the NBA season ends. Like you can't do that with most sports. Most sports, like you, you're not going to have a choice, especially college sports when they're in the same season. So my, and, and, and this could be my last question, but what I'm thinking, uh, there's something that, that has just been hanging in my mind. And I'm very curious to hear your response on this in the 50 years, as my phone falls out of my pocket in, in the 50 years of title nine, you can pick one woman who has made the biggest impact for women's sports. It can be an athlete. It can be a coach. It can be a legislator. Who would you pick? Well, it has to be Billie Jean King because she wow. has carried the banner for women's sports ever since the 70s. You know, back when she, uh, you know, played the, you know, the battle of the sexes. Um, I, Billie Jean King has never stopped um helping women's sports. She developed the Women's Sports Foundation. They are constantly carrying the banner, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C., fighting for legislation. So Billie Jean King, by far, has done the most than any. But there are so many athletes themselves who have really garnered the attention um, that, I, I mean, whether it's a Simone Biles and her pure athleticism as a gymnast, um, as a as a black gymnast, uh, whether it's the U.S. women's soccer team who has just 
not only captured the hearts of little girls everywhere and made soccer explode in the United States, way bigger than men's soccer is. Way it's bigger. Way bigger. Um, then, you know, you, there's so many. And, and I'd say most importantly with the women's U.S. women's soccer team, one of, if not the first examples of successfully being able to achieve on paper equality with achieving equal pay. I think that that is one of the most significant things that happen in Absolutely. the past 50 years. And I think that it opens up the door for so many other equal pay, equal exposure possibilities for women's sports in the next 10, 15 years. I just wanted to, I wanted to drop that in there because I, I don't think that that can be understated how big of a deal that is. Well, and, and there's lots of other women who have made quite an um, impression on girls that convinced them to start playing sports. And I remember Florence Griffith Joyner. I don't know if you know who Florence Griffith Joyner is. So Jackie Joyner Kersey from Illinois downstate, uh, one of the greatest female athletes of our, of in, in the history of, of women's sports. Um, Olympian. I played basketball against her. She played volleyball uh, she was like a five-sport athlete. Um, her sister-in-law, Flojo, at the Olympics wore, I mean, she, what she did in the 80s for female athletes, she was beautiful. She had long flowing hair, long fingernails. She wore the unitard, the one um, leotard for uh, running. Um, she brought grace, power, and style to track and field. And that just made a lot of girls just look and go, because, you know, back in the seventies, when I was playing sports, you were a tomboy. You weren't considered an athlete. You were considered a tomboy because you played sports. And sometimes there was a negative connotation with that. And Flojo showed women that you could be strong and beautiful as well as being powerful as an athlete. So, I mean, there's so many athletes, Jason, that, that continue to really carry the torch for women's sports. But one other thing I wanted to mention when you asked um, why it is that uh, women's sports doesn't garner the same uh, fandom and exposure and they struggle at the professional level. The other thing is gambling. And Candace Parker last year um, from the Chicago Sky really, really went out to speak out about women's college basketball and the WNBA needs to be in people's minds when they are betting on college basketball and when they're doing their brackets. They need they need to make women's brackets as big as doing men's brackets because you can't tell me that the millions of college basketball fans, how many of them started out becoming fans just simply because they filled out a bracket at work or in high school or in college with their friends, and then they started watching the games together. When you start doing that for the women's game, you're naturally going to have a rooting interest as well. So last year, you saw a lot of the betting sites, including women basketball, women's basketball with the brackets and the bracketology, and they started doing the same thing. That is huge to start increasing uh, the interest in women's sports as well. And so Candace Parker was right on the money with that, literally, uh, when she thought that women's sports needs to be a part of the betting parlance as well. So that's what I would say. But Jason, there's a lot of women that I wanted to introduce to our audience as well that I have spoken to uh, on my other podcast called Pass the Mic. And that podcast features women in sports and sports media. And 
I spoke with a handful of women who are very influential in sports and sports media on that podcast that I wanted to introduce to our audience here on the Sportscaster and, and her son. So let's take a listen to some of the, uh, the women that I have talked to over the last two years. And we begin with Dorothy Gators. You are the winningest coach in Illinois State High School history. Uh, in 1975, I was in seventh grade playing at Immaculate Conception Grammar School on the northwest side of the city. Um, I played seventh grade basketball, but I do remember that the school in my neighborhood, the high school, Resurrection High School, had just started their girls' basketball team maybe four years before that, right around Title IX. So you got into a game that I don't even know, were you even able to play basketball in high school? No, no. We had some idiotic game called Captain Basketball where you had to stand on a, you had to stand on like a base. So I guess they figured girls shouldn't run. But in Iowa, uh, they, they were playing there and uh, tremendous success with their attendance and state tournaments and everything. Oh my gosh, I remember that. That was my mom played at Alvernia High School in the 50s in Chicago. And they played and they played 6 on 6, but it wasn't competitive against other schools. It was more like an intramural, you know, type of of program. So so take me back like when when you said you played captain basketball, which blows my mind because back in the 70s when they were passing Title IX, they did let girls play tennis and they let them play things where they wore a skirt. So what was it like when girls started playing other sports, whether it was softball, basketball, volleyball, more physical sports? What was that like back in the 70s? So for, for the girls, it was a lot of fun. And, and for the people who had uh, trepidations, they probably said, oh, my God. They can really play. They can really catch. They can really run. They can really make baskets. So, but the girls, uh, I mean, they were just so excited about it. You know, not just my kids. You know, I'm I'm sure uh, all of the schools that they would have an opportunity to compete at the level that the, that we were being alive. So you started a team called the Debs. It was an oh, AAU wow. team. I can't believe I thought I knew everything about you or almost everything about you until I read that you had started an AAU team called the Debs. Tell me about this team. So I was working at the Park District um, my junior and senior year uh, in college, and I was made aware that there was an AAU program uh, for adult women and, you know, younger ages could participate, too. So. While at the park, I organized a team, and one of uh, my favorite kids, she's now a grandmother, she would wait for me every day, and uh, her name was Deborah. And so when I was trying to think of a name, I thought of Dorette. That sounds too much like a, a musical group, but that was a name for me because, you know, I was the person that was starting it up, and uh, I decided to name it uh, the Debonettes. Uh, for the, for this kid in honor of her. She has been named to People Magazine's 25 Women Changing the World, 
Fortune's 40 Under 40 and named one of Sports Illustrated's most powerful, most influential, and most outstanding women in sports. Let's welcome in Sam Rappaport, Senior Director of Football Development for the NFL. It was in 2016 where, you know, I, I had this idea where I wanted to bridge the gap between the thousands and thousands of women in this country who love the NFL, want to work in the NFL, um, and the people who could potentially hire them. So I was playing uh, on, a, on a charity flag football event with Commissioner Roger Goodell. He was a quarterback on one side. I was a quarterback on the other side. And, you know, after the game, I met his wife, Jane Goodell, and three of us were talking. And I told Roger, you know, I have this idea. Um, and the idea was a way to make the NFL better, which is what he challenges us to do all the time. And, you know, the idea was to to bring these women in a room with owners and head coaches and general managers and people who could hire them. And, you know, he said, call me Monday. And I called him Monday. And a couple months later, I was hired into this role. So you have a football background. Tell us about your playing experience and, and you know, when you were first uh, exposed to the game of football. Sure. So luckily, growing up in Canada, girls flag, touch and tackle football is available to us. So to me, growing up, it was normal, right? I played in the junior high level, the high school level. And then when I went to college, I played female uh, professional tackle football as a quarterback. So, you know, I grew up loving the sport. I was a huge Cowboys fan in the early 90s and, you know, just adored the sport and knew that I wanted to dedicate my career to bringing more people like me and more people from different backgrounds to the game so they can enjoy it as much as anyone else does. She is the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, a lawyer, chairman of the Big Three League, and author of the book, You Negotiate Like a Girl. Let's welcome in the NFL's first female front office executive, Amy Trask. What was the toughest group for you to to break into? Was it, you know, owners? Was it other team executives? Was it the agents? Was it the players? I mean, where did you find the obstacles? Well, I'll answer that in a few ways. Uh, you are absolutely right. When I went to my first league meeting, I was the only woman in the room. Uh, so, Look, look, for many of the people listening to this, they weren't even born when I started my career. I started with the Raiders in the early part of the mid-80s as an intern, and shortly thereafter, also in the mid-80s on a full-time basis. And I went to that first league meeting, and I was the only woman in the room. Uh, but I received a lot of support from a lot of the team owners in that room, men like Lamar Hunt and Wellington Mara and Ralph Wilson, to name a few, Oh, oh, and atop the list, Dan Rooney. Um, they, and I should have named Dan first. You know, this was at a time I joined the Raiders when Al was involved in a legal dispute with the league. The league had sued the Raiders. Al had counterclaimed. I joined the organization. And, and the reason I note that is these men that I just named, Dan Rooney, Lamar Hunt, Wellington Mara, Ralph Wilson, they were adverse to Al in that litigation. But from the moment I entered that room, they offered me their support and their encouragement, and they did so for all the years we interacted. As to players, I never, over the course of almost 30 years, had any experience with a player in which I sensed any resentment on on anyone's part or any opposition based on my gender. My experience with players was they wanted to know 
How are you helping make us a better team? How are you contributing to help us win? And if one was contributing in that regard, that was great by way of players. Was there opposition to me based on my gender? Of course there was. Did I care? Not one bit. You know, people ask me all the time, was I tested because I was a woman? Well, you know what? People are tested all the time. They're tested based on race or gender, age, educational background, seniority, ethnicity. People are tested all the time. And it is my view that when one is tested, the best thing to do is pass the damn test. So that's where I put my energy. I never focused on my gender. Doesn't make sense to me that if I want to walk into a room, a business meeting, a locker room meeting, a coaches meeting, a meeting with bankers or municipal leaders or anyone else, and I don't want them thinking about my gender, or I hope they're not thinking about that, that I should be thinking about it. That just doesn't make sense to me. There is a story when there was a meeting set up, I guess, with the NFLPA, Demora Smith and Al Davis. He could not, Al Davis could not attend, or he sent you to at least welcome Demora Smith and his entourage. Um, and um, you were stopped by someone in Demora Smith's group. Can you tell that story? Uh, yes, it, it surprised me. I don't know that it should have um, surprised me as it did because I do know that these sorts of things go on, but I was surprised when I walked downstairs to greet DeMorris and explain to him that Al wasn't able to meet with him, but to welcome him to his building. And someone with his group approached me and as I started to walk towards DeMorris, stopped me and asked me whose secretary I was. And, and that took me back because that was an assumption that um, he made, assuming that I was there in the role of someone's assistant or secretary. Are you still sleeping? How tall is the tallest tree? Where do crayons get their color? Do you understand me? How big can a bubble be? How hot can I climb? How fast can I run? How long can we spin? She should question everything. Why do we have a bedtime? But never herself. That's why there's girls in the game. Are we there yet? Helping young girls turn why into why not. She is ESPN sports personality and host of Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern time. She is also a Peabody and Emmy Award winner and co-owner. Yeah, co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars. Let's welcome in Sarah Spain. You really were not afraid to take the leap into being who you are. And that's like everything. Talk about how difficult it was, or was it an easy decision for you to take that approach? You know, now that you're asking it that way, I do think that 
I felt like it was a detriment to me that I hadn't studied journalism at Cornell, gone to get my MBA, followed the path, go to a small market, work in local television, do the one-man band, and then make my way to a bigger market. In a lot of ways, I had to learn on the fly and trial by fire in bigger locker rooms and markets where you know you make a mistake and it's a bigger deal. But I think because I didn't know that I wanted to be a sports reporter until much later, I moved out to L.A., to do comedy and acting. I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. I did the Second City Conservatory. I was, you know, taking classes in sitcom comedy characters. And I I just always wanted to perform. And growing up, 90s bulls, I was obsessed with them. But there's not a lot of women. I think Missy Isaacson might have been the only byline you could catch. And I was watching the games and I was devouring all the books and the DVDs. But I wasn't in the mindset of looking for the coverage. Who was doing the coverage? I just wanted the players and the game, right? And my family's not super into sports. My parents aren't. So it was never a matter of you're really into sports. Would you ever want to work? It just didn't even occur to me till later in life. And so I got out to LA and I was doing comedy stuff and acting and working at a restaurant as one does when they're trying to get auditions and stuff and decided to take a TV hosting boot camp through to a break for a fake Chicago Bears show, welcomed back the audience or whatever. And the teacher said, oh, sports, that's what you want to do. I said, oh, no, there's no women in sports. Um, the, the only ones I see are very serious anchors, the ones you mentioned, got the blazer, trying to be, mm-hmm. you know, like, or beautiful supermodel sideline reporters. And that's not me. I want to be funny. I want to be sarcastic. And she said, well, you know, you could just think about it. Took a class at UCLA Extension in TV sports reporting. All of a sudden, my English major, my performance side, my love of sports, my by being a D1 athlete all came together and I realized, oh, this is something I should do. And then once I started, it moved so fast that I didn't have time to really think about what I was supposed to be doing so much as follow my gut, which is I'm going to bring all of my improv into my interviews. I'm going to make them looser and more fun. I'm going to talk to the athletes like I would talk to them because I'm a 26 year old person. I'm not, you know, I don't have to be too serious. And the first job I got really helped with that because it was a startup website all about bringing out player personalities. And that's Mm -hmm. probably what you remember is me getting Christopher Stieg to rap Fergie Glamorous in the locker room and doing these quick, these little videos where I would do, you know, have a stack of sheets and take a paper and each one had a different picture and the player (laughs) would have to have their very first reaction of like one word to it. So it really helped ease into this is who I am. This is who we want the players to get to be. And once that started, it gave me enough confidence to say I could keep doing this instead of feeling like I have to get that super polished, overdone thing, which can work for some people and is great for specific parts of the industry. But I wanted the freedom to not have to do that. Pretty interesting women that we were able to talk to last year on Pass the Mic. And we'll start the the new season for Pass the Mic. Uh, typically, we start... It coincides with the football season uh, on the Barroom Network. So pretty interesting, huh, Chase? Yeah, no, always very interesting. It's always cool seeing how well connected you are. This is one of the, like your things that I would say is like one of your bread and butter type of areas. It's it's women's equality. It's women in sports, especially locally. So no one's gonna be better connected than you. So it's awesome seeing like former CEO of the Oakland Raiders. I didn't even know that there was a former female CEO of the Oakland Raiders because when you think of the Oakland Raiders, you think of Mark Davis and Al Davis and John Gruden and and all the men just kind of like shooting the shit and making horrible trades and horrible draft picks. So. Uh, I think that that was super interesting. And then Sarah Spain, somebody who I've grown up watching on ESPN, somebody who's a Cornell alumni, shout out to Shay, and uh, just somebody who is, I think, very admirable in women's media. I think that Sarah Spain is somebody who does not back down from her opinion, is always one of the more vocal people when you look at a show like uh, 
uh, uh, I'm totally blanking right now. Around the horn. That's yeah. what I think Around the horn. Um, and I just think it's super admirable. And I think that, you know, we need more women like that in sports media. And we're getting to an era in sports media where equality is starting to shift. And you are seeing an equal amount of women hosting, an equal amount of women as, as guests, and especially like female NBA analysts. I think that's so cool. Chenea Gwumake is one of my favorite people on all of television. And um, so I think that seeing some of that stuff start to increase in, in television and in sports television is important. And, and it's cool for you because now you get to look back, you're towards the end of your career and you get to kind of see, see the impact that you've made and, and how things have, have changed since you came into the league. Well, and, and a shout out also to um, a couple of Chicago uh, media that have uh, really done a nice job in their celebration of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. The Chicago Tribune has done an incredible series um, identifying women that many people may not have known about throughout the history of sports in Chicago. And uh, my former station, NBC Chicago, has done a series as well. You can check them out online. And uh, ESPN Radio has also been doing some vignettes on women in Chicago uh, as a celebration towards um, their contribution to sports in Chicago. So shout out to all of those media outlets in Chicago that have also been uh, celebrating the anniversary of Title IX. So with that said, Jason, uh, kind of a different episode, but you have some final thoughts? Uh, yeah, so I have predictions? three predictions. I have okay. three predictions. Uh, the first one is going to be a women's sports prediction. So I'm actually going to predict that the Chicago Sky repeat as WNBA champions. I follow Chicago Sky on Twitter. I interned for them the summer after my junior year of high school. So I've always been been a Chicago Sky fan and I've always been a supporter of the team. So I'm going to predict that Candace Parker and the girls that they repeat and make Chicago a championship city because none of the men's sports sure as hell are going to make it a championship city. So there's my first prediction. My second prediction, yesterday was a very, 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 very exciting day for all current University of Texas students because the chosen one, Arch Manning, is a Texas Longhorn. I'm going to predict that Arch wins one national championship when he's here, but that that national championship, because of course, is going to come after I graduate. So 2024 or later, um, because of course, that's how it's going to go down. They're not going to win anything um, while I go to school here. And then number three, the Chicago White Sox continue to just kind of find ways to disappoint people. And and right when they win three, four games in a row, they'll lose another two and uh, can't figure it out. So I'm actually going to make a really bold prediction here. I'm going to say that this is Tony LaRusso's last year managing. I don't think that a change happens during the season because the only way that a change will happen will be if Tony's ready for a change to happen. But with how heavily scrutinized some of the decisions have been this season, like obviously walking Max Muncie on a, or walking Trey Turner on a one and two count, go crime punishable by death. So I think that, I think that Tony LaRussa, he's going to hang him up after this year. A guy like that, he has a Hall of Fame career, he has a Hall of Fame resume, he has a Hall of Fame legacy if you were to hang him up in the next six months. So I think Tony sees that. And Gary Reinsdorf isn't going to fire Tony LaRussa, but Tony LaRussa is going to read the tea leaves and realize that he should probably hang him up. So that's going to be my third prediction. And uh, yeah. Uh, well done, Jason. I love it. Um, so I guess I do have some final thoughts, as I should, since this is our Title IX 50 Years Later episode. So what's next for Title IX? Well, I really don't want my daughter to go through any of the inequities that any women in my lifetime have had to suffer. 
The Women's Sports Foundation, as I mentioned before, with Billie Jean King, has studied these inequities between men and women's sports participation and the opportunities that are being given. While women's participation in college athletics since Title IX has increased, 44% of all NCAA athletes are women, compared to just 15% before Title IX. But male athletes still have 60,000 more collegiate sports opportunities than women. So there is still work to be done. And why does that matter? Well, when you consider that almost 60% of college students right now in 2022 are women. That's right. 60% of college students are women. And yet men have over 56% of college athletic opportunities. It just doesn't add up. The scholarship dollars are not adding up to reflect those that women being the majority in college campuses, they should be getting the majority of the money. And I know everyone will point to the amount of money that is being brought in by football and basketball programs, until you invest in the women's programs, you can't ask them to do something that it would be impossible to. More women are coaching than before Title IX. 90% of female teams in, at, college, at the college level were coached by women before Title IX. Now, as the athletic opportunities have grown for women in, in college sports, guess what? Those coaching opportunities are going to men. 60% of those opportunities go to men. So male coaches are taking advantage of the increase in women's sports, but women not just yet. And we have to change that. The numbers are even worse for women of color and for women in the LGBTQ community. We see that changing very slowly, but there is change. More women are coaching football, hockey, baseball. More women are given opportunities in these professional leagues in their front offices. I hope in 50 years, my daughter is not even asked about Title IX. Just like today, no one even questions the women's right to vote. No one should be questioning opportunities in 50 years for women in sports. Okay, Jason, what do we tell our fans if you like? You don't even think on the 100-year anniversary of Title IX that anyone's going to ask any questions about Title IX? Well, I mean, of course they are, but you know. (laughs) Oh, I hope you live to see the day, Mom. I know. Okay, tell people what they can do if they like this episode. So if you like this episode, you can check out all of our other shows on just about any podcast streaming service ever, Podbean, Spotify, Apple Play. Uh, literally anything YouTube we really like. So, uh, yeah, like, rate, subscribe, do it over again. Helps us out a lot. It's a whole algorithm thing. You know, we've been over it before. So, yeah. Check us out on YouTube. Uh, If you subscribe, then you'll never miss an episode. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, Pass the Mic, also found on the Barroom Network on YouTube as well. Um, and hey, get some get some fan merch. You can get some fan merch at our store on T Public website. And the link is on our Facebook page at the Sportscaster and our Sun.com website as well. I want to thank all the women that I interviewed for the Pass the Mic podcast who um, are now featured on this episode of the Sportscaster and her son. You can find that podcast on the Barroom Network on YouTube. Thank you to Eldo Gandia and the Barroom Network. Thank you to Adam Yaffe, our Sultan of Sound. 
that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jason. I think the most appropriate way for you to say goodbye is to say what you used to say to me all the time whenever I talk about <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely I thought that it was cool yesterday uh, seeing your name featured on that Chicago Tribune list. Uh, I didn't think that it was cool that you couldn't send me the screenshots of it. Um, however, I did want to say that as cool as it is like for me to have a mom that I think is really cool and that, and that I look up to, it's always been really cool for me to think that there are so many girls my age, younger than me, older than me, that look up to you just as much as I do. So I've always thought that it's cool that I'm not the only one that looks up to you um, as much as I do. So Aww, don't buddy. do that. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. I love you, Jace. Thank you. Love you, mom. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. everything. Why do we have a bedtime? But never herself. That's why there's girls in the game. Helping young girls turn why into why not. 